0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For journalism, it may be the best of times and the worst of times. On the one hand, the national media is more vibrant than ever. The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, as well as broadcast news and cable television networks are thriving, even amidst the post-Trump drop in ratings. For these outlets, the transition to digital has been painful but successful and is still ongoing as CNN and NBC both announced new streaming models. The New York Times now derives over 60% of its revenue from digital subscriptions. Recurring revenue models are driving the success of independent and specific news outlets, as well as individual journalists on Substack and similar platforms. While romantics rap quixotic about the 23 newspapers that once were available in New York, websites and Twitter have now subsumed that, and new sites start up regularly. With lower barriers to entry, and what some argue is a greater democratization of information. For local news, however, the story is not quite as good. What's happening in your neighborhood, your school board, your city council, is a very different story. Thousands of local newspapers and local radio stations have shut down. Economics of the enterprise has proven to be unsustainable, and even large regional papers in places like L.A., Chicago, and Miami have proven to be problematic. And while many of the best of these papers have been stripped and plundered by hedge funds, let's also remember that many were acquired by hedge funds out of bankruptcy. All of this begs the question of whether our political, cultural, and social problems stem from the top, as is assumed, or whether the hollowing out of news in our communities and a change in the makeup of the media business is at the heart of what's wrong. Is the press in this digital age freer and more vibrant, or are its limitations dragging democracy down? We're going to talk about all of that today with my guest, Brian Karam. He's an award-winning journalist, author, and speaker. He's worked in both newspapers and television as an investigative journalist covering politics, crime, refugee issues— and state and local news. He's the recipient of the National Press Club's Freedom of the Press Award and appears regularly as a political analyst on television and served as senior White House correspondent for Playboy and currently writes a weekly column for Salon.com. It is my pleasure to welcome Brian Caram here to talk about his new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. What is your biggest concern about the state of journalism today?
1: There's very little journalism being done today is my greatest concern. The stuff that I was taught and how I was taught to to do the work uh, has been uh, abandoned as uh, as media properties have been bought up as uh, fewer and fewer, uh, outlets remain, and it's become difficult if near impossible to do the job that as it should be done.
0: When we certainly look at at the national media, the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Post, et cetera, certainly we see thriving journalistic enterprises, yes?
1: I don't I, I think you see um, I don't know if I would <laughs> would would agree with that. I would say that what you see is uh, businesses under uh, a model of communication, um being able to exist, but you have to remember that real journalism is often done at the community level and politics uh, shouldn't play a part and it does in journalism and it's difficult to separate the the biggest difficulty in journalism today is separating journalism it's become tethered to capitalism. Now look'm I'm am I'm a, I'm a budding capitalist myself and, and Fervently love it. And so if you want to go out and buy as many copies of my book as you want, <laughs> have at it, I'm right there. But journalism and and capitalism shouldn't be tethered together because what happens is what you get in every uh, – whether it's the New York Times and, and less so there because they've got a little bit more of independence because of their money, but everywhere else is that you, what you get is news that you want to read, here. or hear – rather than news that you need to read, see, or hear. And there's a great difference in that we stay in these informational silos where we read stuff that reinforces our own ignorance and, and beliefs rather than branching out and even being able to find real news because it just doesn't really exist anymore.
0: Isn't that the fault of the consumer as opposed to, to the journalism?
1: That's, that's, well, it's both. Look, it's back when there were guardrails, it was it, we were less hooked, less tethered to capitalism, less tethered to selling what the public wants, and so therefore the public didn't have the influence that it has on us now. Because back then there were people that knew the problem. It was in 1958 that Edward R. Murrow said, "Look, we've got to we, we've got to look and face this demon down. We're going to in the, in the years ahead, if we don't fix what we're doing, we're going to be doing nothing but." Printing propaganda and, and promoting slogans, which is exactly what we've become, as we've tethered ourselves to supply and demand. You buy what you want. So yes, the, of course, you know it's what we want. That that and the consumer is responsible for it. But wiser heads have to uh, look over the situation and guide us, and take us away from that model. So. What the consumers want is not necessarily what they need. You you know, your dog will sit there and eat
0: enough food till it dies. On the other hand, nobody wants to be fed a diet of broccoli 24-7. Well, I'm not saying that you feed people broccoli 24-7.
1: I'm saying that you feed people facts. And And the beautiful thing about facts is that they are everything that you need dietarily. And you can form great opinions based on facts. The problem today is that we live in a in a world that is more based in fiction than in fact, when you have members of Congress walking into Congress and holding up a snowball and saying, "See no global warming," when you have people denying the insurrection t- occurred and that people were armed and maimed, and that it was not a peaceful demonstration or by any stretch of the imagination what the Republicans say is you know Legitimate political discourse. It wasn't any of that. Alternate facts should not exist. What happened is look, journalism was the language we spoke together as we tried to use politics as a means for us to solve our problems together and row in the right direction in the same boat. Today, we don't, it's like the Tower of Babel. The speech has been scattered, there are too many people talking that don't know what they're doing. And part of this book shows how to be a journalist and how an act of journalism is far different than an act of of an opinion writer.
0: Isn't the solution to
1: speech more speech? That's not journalism, sure. Anybody can speak. I'm talking about journalism. I'm talking about taking this craft seriously so that the speech that people hear from us is vetted factual information by which we can all use to make decisions and fuel our speech. If you want to, if you want to do nothing but eat potato chips, fine, go eat potato chips. But if you want a well-rounded diet of real information, we have to have places that we go where facts are vetted, where those vetted facts are then used to base as the basis for opinions. As I was saying, I've had reporters come to me over the years that have worked for me and go this is what I think. And I go, I don't care what you think. I barely care what I think. What do you know? There are reporters today that operate without, and I don't think you can call yourself a reporter unless you have a, a copy editor. There are many newspapers, many mainstream uh, media outlets that don't have copy editors. There are many reporters that don't know how to walk into a, a, a city council and cover a city council or go to a city clerk's office and find information, you know, public records. All of those things are necessary. How do you talk to people? How do you ask questions? How do you find out the truth? We've lost that ability. So yeah, you've got a lot of people speaking, and I'm all for that, but I'm not listening to a lot of it because it's garbage. I don't want garbage being spewed out in the name of journalism. If you want an opinion, fine. You have it. You can print it. You can put it online, and as many people that want to put out their opinion as possible, God bless, Mazel Tov, go do it. But if you're going to call yourself a journalist, you better know how to vet facts, and you better be able to to present those facts in a manner that is concise and, by the way, factual.
0: You talked about the idiot member of Congress with the snowball and and the crazy language with respect to uh, the insurrection, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, though, has been properly reported in the mainstream media, not not to be a big defender of mainstream media. But certainly The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal have, have, and, and television have all reported on on the misinformation there and the factual side of that reporting of facts does exist. I didn't say it doesn't exist.
1: I see. I said there needs to be more of it. When was the last time a local newspaper went out and tested the water? When was the last time a local newspaper went out and uh, looked at your city council to decide how contracts are awarded? When was the last time there are, for example, and here's a great example from an investigative report that my newspaper did a few years ago. Where did your money go? You're out in California, so you know what traffic light cameras are and speed cameras are. So you pay those. How much do you pay? Where does that money go? The assumption, of course, is that the money goes into the coffers of the local entity that is, you know, in essence, providing a road tax. It's, there's no, you don't get points on your license, you won't lose your license. The worst it'll do is hurt your uh, credit rating or you'll get, you know, billed and you've got to pay it. But where does that money actually go? Well, in our case, we found out that half the money went to the taxing entity, half the money went to a whole a, a company in Florida that was a wholly owned subsidiary of a company in, in Pennsylvania, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of a, a, country in, uh, Los An- uh, a company in Los Angeles, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of a company in London, which, by the way, upon which on the board sat uh, a, a bin Laden. So, how much of where does your money go? That type of stuff reporting is not done. It's easy to walk into Congress, that's a visual. And take a picture of a guy holding a snowball and by the way it isn't reported because it's it's factual information you need it's usually reported because it's a visual that was done in front of a camera on purpose by someone trying to get you know clicks and clickbait it was a staged event real honest to god reporting is investigative reporting that takes time that takes money, and it takes a lot of intelligence and a lot of experience to do it, and we're not doing it. Where, Who's poisoning our food supply? Why why did you not hear about the supply chain until it broke down when there's been warning signs that have been underreported for years? When you talk about infrastructure, do you know whether there are thousands of bridges in California, and I'm talking those are overpasses and, and other bridges, how many of them are are below standard i've got i did an investigative report one time where we we saw you know there was a a bridge rated at two tons and we watched a school bus go over it that alone and empty was more than two tons and then it had another two tons of kids on it and we watched as the bridge vibrated and almost collapsed and it went across that every day when do you see that all of that stuff is local reporting by the way local high school football and sports, all of that. Most of the major stories that you read, see, or hear at a national level began at a local level, and that reporting does not go on. And that's why some of the people who get the most attention and the most votes, even locally, are those who make the biggest splash and get the most money. As an exam- There's two examples I'll give. The Courier-Journal and Louisville-Times, where I grew up, if you wanted to run for office back in the day, even if you didn't like the paper, you liked the fact that you were endorsed by the paper because they interviewed everyone who ran for an office, did background checks on them, investigation, brought them before an editorial board, vetted them with interviews, and then gave an assessment on who was the best, whether it was a Republican or Democrat or an Independent. They were independent-minded and gave who they thought was the best. And if you got an endorsement by that paper, you appreciated it because it meant something. There are very few papers doing that today at all. Who are the people that are running for office? Our local, our, our local uh, journalism doesn't exist to cover that. There are vast, huge, holes that are called news deserts in this country, because as you pointed out at the beginning of this broadcast, vulture capitals or venture capitalists have bought them up, closed them down, or shrunk them to they don't exist anymore. Every place I've ever worked at in my lifetime has been downsized or closed. And the greatest example, of that, the second example that I was going to give, is go, to, uh, uh, go down to Texas. Go to the border. Go to Laredo. When I worked down there in 1984, there were 100,000 people. There were two daily newspapers in English and two in Spanish. There were three uh, television stations uh, in English, two in Spanish, Uh, one magazine, and three or four radio stations that all did the news for 100,000 people. Today, there are three times the number of people in Laredo, Texas, 300,000, serviced by one newspaper And one television station. And that's it. On the day that I was born, there are more than two times the number of people on this planet is uh, is on the day that I was born and half the number of journalists. That's the problem.
0: Certainly, everything you say with respect to, to local journalism is absolutely true. The argument is, why, does, why is that the case? How did we get to this point? You know, One of the problems with these hedge funds, and, and they certainly have done a hell of a lot of damage in terms of local journalism, but many of the outlets that they've bought, they've bought out of bankruptcy. These were outlets that were struggling and broke before the hedge funds even bought them. There's a problem that's larger than just the number of journalists. There's a problem in terms of the American public.
1: No, the problem is in terms of the American government, not the American public. Well, the American public elected the government, but it's the government that elected to destroy journalism. It began, it started with Richard Nixon. It took root with uh, Roger Ailes and Ronald Reagan. And every president, Democrat and Republican, in the last 40 years has destroyed or taken steps to help destroy journalism. Local newspapers, State, federal, and local governments are responsible for removing community service ads, public notice ads, because they they would rather publish them on their websites than put them in a newspaper. That is a transparency issue problem that we now do not actually know what's going on in our government. Look, I can print a newspaper today. I, I can show you a newspaper printed in 1815 that I have a copy of. It's the same today as it was then. It can't be hacked. It can't be changed. It's finite. It's invaluable when it comes to a court of law and in history. I can go online and hack anything. So the government should not be allowed to provide that information without it being vetted by a newspaper. Also, it takes away profits, and many small newspapers can exist without those public notice ads. They underwrite those newspapers. That's how we have destroyed journalism at that level. At the federal level, what Nixon and wanted was to take the the blinders off or to take guide, guardrails off and let people buy each other up. Nixon wanted it. Reagan began it. And it was the 19, it was Reagan who got rid of the fairness doctrine. It was uh, Reagan who helped uh, multiple ownerships occur, that which gave us Sinclair, which gave us, you know, you used to have in the 80's, as I point out in the book, we were – the unions – he destroyed unions. We were trying – the unions were trying to limit newspaper ownership so newspapers could stay viable. They went broke because they couldn't stay viable as they were bought up. Here's what happens. If you own a large newspaper or a large television station or a network and you buy up somebody smaller, well, you've got – let's see. The larger – you already have a correspondent in the state capital. You already have one in D.C. What do you need another one for? Let's save money. We were always told that we were saving money to benefit journalism, but it didn't go back into journalism, didn't go back into the newsrooms. It went into the pockets of the people who owned the corporations. It never went back into journalism. So what you end up with, people aren't stupid, aren't that stupid. You pick up a newspaper and you go, there's no original reporting here. Looks nice. Looks pretty. A lot of ads. But why should I buy this? There's nothing here for me. A lot of people would pick up local newspapers to cut out the pictures of their kids playing high school football. You saw high school football results. You didn't get those anymore. All of those things helped you buy newspapers. And by the way, newspapers are different than what you get on the Internet. On the Internet, you're going for a hard target search. I want to see a story about Joe Rogan. All right, well, you, you, you go, and there's a story about Joe Rogan. Newspapers, you have thumbed through it, and you learn stuff you may have never known before. And those public notice ads were used by salesmen and lawyers. They would look at them and go, oh, look, so-and-so, is, you know, there's a meeting this Saturday. Oh, this estate sale happened. Oh, here's somebody I can call as a customer. It helped build communities and not tear them apart. So newspapers and television stations and radio stations that went broke went Went that way because they were gutted, and there was—it's like buying a Cadillac without a without a an engine in it. That's what journalism became. It looked real pretty, but it wouldn't go anywhere. That's why they went broke. That's why they have problems. The government did it. Reagan started it. The 1996 Telecommunications Act gave us iHeart Radio, where you can go into one city and there'll be 18 radio stations all owned by the same person. It's like you know. That's, it's all the same. It's all vanilla pudding. It, and then you had the Patriot Act, which helped spy on us. Then you had Obama, who used the Espionage Act eight times to go after reporter, or, uh, confidential sources. And that has to stop. All, every president from Reagan on has done this. So it ends up where we are today without any legitimate journalism at all. People screaming from the left and the right. Everyone knows there's something wrong with journalism. But nobody can put their finger on – they think they know what it is, but they haven't been in the business doing it. I have, and I'm telling you, those are the problems. The government and big business has destroyed journalism. We need to break up media monopolies. We need to encourage local journalism. We need a a fairness doctrine to protect and make sure that we uh, send out vetted facts. And then finally, we need to have a a shield law, a national shield law, so – Reporters can protect their sources. Those things will help build journalism back.
0: Having said that, and and it was a great nostalgic trip, but how do we improve journalism in, in the real world, in a world in which print is continuing to die? I mean, I think it was the, the CEO of The New York Times acknowledged in an interview several weeks ago— that, that she could imagine that, that the print edition of the New York Times would go away at some point, as will most newspapers. The Fairness Doctrine is not coming back.
1: There is a movement to bring it back. We need to encourage it. How do we do this in the real world? Break up media monopolies. Give low-interest uh, low loans to uh, local media. Newspapers don't have to die. Books aren't dying. You still buy a book. My book's out there. Buy it,
0: it's called. Books Free are thriving. By, books are uh, thriving.
1: Yeah. Yes. So newspapers would thrive if there were anything in them worth reading. If they were as they as they used to be, a repository and by the way, even though they are dying, they are still the basis for most television, national television news stories. It's hilarious. There's not any original reporting done. At the national level, are very little done. You want to save journalism. Here's, here, you know, the low interest loans would be great. Uh, uh, public national enhancing national public radio would be great. Nonprofit journalism would be great. But for the local newspapers, it's real simple. Make sure that public notice ads are remain part of of, of the culture and are part of the equation. Number two, what if, for example? You gave everybody in the United States a $100 rebate on their income tax if, you know, or, or a refund on their income tax if they could prove they subscribed to a local newspaper. That would do wonders to bring back local newspapers. If we covered local high school sports, if we covered the PTA meetings, all of those do have – there are local readers that have an interest in those things, and they used to be done. They became, they were not economically viable once the costs became so prohibitive, and they are not prohibitive anymore. They can be done. It became cost prohibitive because the large corporations saw them as lost leaders and didn't want to do them anymore. They failed because big business and big government failed us.
0: We see that for. You know, attempts at local journalism, things like the Texas Tribune and, and others, are, w- are working because they're on a subscription model and a philanthropic model. Well, I think you have to have
1: both. Uh, it's, it's nice if you've got some rich guy who doesn't mind, you know, like, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, the movie where Rosebud, you know, <laughs> and he goes, hey, uh, uh, I'm going to lose a million dollars a year. And he goes, good, in 68 years, I may have to worry. You know, it's nice if you have somebody like Jeff Bezos or somebody rich doing it, but the more so the, the realistic way to do it is, is to, like the Courier Journal did for years. They, there, were a, there was a saying over the door when I first started working there, you know, from Robert Worth Bingham who said, I've always looked at these newspapers as a public trust and have endeavored to operate them in, in that way or something, words to that effect. So we quit being greedy and accept that you're not going to get rich as a journalist, but that you provide a, a valuable public service and you can make a decent coin doing it, then you will have more people doing it. Journalism has always attracted the best and the brightest because there is a wonderful uh, – it's a wonderful way to lead a life, being on you – know, being in the front row to witness history, traveling around the world with somebody else's nickel. It always attracts independent, bright people. It doesn't keep them because it can't pay them. And it doesn't pay them because the boards are too busy taking away the money. It used to be that when you got into the, you know, I had to have three to five years experience. I was told when I first got into this business before I could go anywhere. Now they hire you straight out of school and put you in the White House to cover the White House. And you don't have any idea what you're doing. When I first walked into the the Brady briefing room in 1986 it was Sam Donaldson, who told me, he said, Brian, look at that first row there of, of reporters. There's probably more than 200 years of experience there. Listen to all of them. We don't have that anymore. You look at the first row of the Brady Briefing Room, and it's a bunch of kids that have very little uh, experience and are susceptible to being uh, coerced by the powers that be into doing. You know, it, it's called access journalism. You want access? Be nice, and they do it, and the corporations do it. Very little investigative reporting exists. You need to that.
0: There's also the celebrity component in, in that we have journalists today that want to be celebrities so they can A, be on television or B, have a sub stack with a half a million subscribers. Look, I don't belittle people for wanting to be read or, or to be seen. It, it, it's, that's not
1: the problem. The problem is you don't have the experience to know that what you're doing is, is more important than who you are. That's the, it's not that I want as many people to read or see as many journalists that shouldn't of itself make you a celebrity, nor should your goal as a reporter be to be a celebrity. Your goal is to provide information that people can use. And if I'm doing my job correctly, hopefully many people will tune in. Many people will read, but if you lose your, your focus and think it's all about you instead of about the information that's where you have a problem and there are plenty of journalists so-called journalists that do that today and it's because they don't have the training look sam donaldson uh helen thomas walter cronkite many people saw them right many people read them but they didn't put their celebrity status ahead of the journalism by the way it was walter cronkite you, you know they say there's no opinion. And you, you, you valued Walter Cronkite's opinion when he gave it about the Vietnam War because he had the, the gravitas and the experience to give it to you. He had been a reporter in World War II, he had been a beat reporter. He had all of this experience. And when he became Walter Cronkite, you know, the, the, the anchor, you believed him because you trusted him and you trusted him. Because you knew he had the experience and he was there doing the job right. That's why he got his celebrity. He didn't get his celebrity because he went after clickbait or that he, you know, was screaming and ranting and raving. He did the job correctly. They gave Sam Donaldson grief for asking questions and yelling them. But Sam always kept his head on straight. And he by the way he wrote the foreword of the book. The book is called Free the Press. Go ahead, buy as many copies as you want. It was it was Sam who you know who who get earned a reputation of being combative, but it was with it was with Reagan, it was with Carter, it was with Clinton, it was with Bush. He didn't care, as he said, he knew that the uh, the president and their people were there to put his best foot forward. Our job was to hold their feet to the fire and make them accountable. Today we don't have that because we don't have the experience. I want as many people as possible to read, see, or hear journalists that do the job correctly and not journalists that do the job for the greater glorification of themselves.
0: And what is your view? We only have a couple of minutes left, but talk about your views of of young people that are coming out of journalism schools today.
1: Well, I'd like like to see more of them come out of journalism school, but they are coming out of journalism school and going into PR or other communications because the job simply, I can't tell you the number of times a week, When I have young reporters ask me if they know where, you know, do I know where they can, you know, seek gainful employment and make some money? The the pay is poor. You have to be drawn to this job for it's a bit of a calling, and you have to be drawn to it for that. I think that um, you need to come out of this, out of school and get a job learning what it is to be in this business first. It's great if you get it. I'm not going to hold it against you if you get a job in the White House straight out of school, but don't think just because you did, you're the best and the brightest. You just may be the cheapest and the dumbest.
0: Is there anything that gives you optimism about the state of journalism going forward?
1: Yeah, I'm still above ground. So as long as I'm uh, on this side of the dirt, I will be optimistic and push for what I think is is best in journalism. And that's vetted facts, uh, experience and valued opinions labeled as such.
0: Brian Karam, his book is Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Sure, it was very enjoyable any Thank you.